Wondering how to navigate local, city, state, or the federal government in order to grow your business, secure funding for your nonprofit, or advance your organization's agenda? Welcome to Lobbying Insider, a podcast that brings listeners to the intersection of business and government to provide a rare perspective on how things actually get done. We will dive into some pressing current issues, provide keen observations from the past, and keep an ever-watchful eye on what's coming next. I'm your host, Zach Fink, Director of External Affairs at Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. Glad to have you with us. We have today a very special edition of the podcast. We are going to be joined by Felipe Luciano, who just wrote the book Flesh and Spirit, Confessions of a Young Lord. He was one of the founding members of the Young Lords. And Felipe joins us now. And a little bit later, we're going to be delving into a chapter he focuses on in the book where the Young Lords took over Lincoln Hospital to make a point. And our own Sid Davidoff from Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron, our firm, was the negotiator sent in by the Lindsay administration to negotiate an end to that siege. But let's start out with uh, Felipe, who is joining us now. Felipe, first of all, I just got through your book. It is riveting. It is a fascinating read. I knew about the Young Lords. I didn't know all the details and the history. And I, I just will tell you at the outset, I'm a fan. It was a very interesting book. I thank you very much, Zach. I've seen you grow. I've seen you in Albany. I've seen you in New York One. And the fact that I'm here sitting with you, um, a TV star. Former TV star. Former TV right. star. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still, I, I'm in awe. So thank you very much I for inviting me. I appreciate that, Felipe. Thank you. It's great to have you. So let me just uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, and, and then I want to go back to the beginning, because I, I think in particular you're writing about your formative experience of going to jail at such a young, going to prison at such a young age. I mean, that was such, it was such an authenticity, the way you wrote about that and what that experience must have been like. I mean, you were, you were so young. It was so harrowing. But let me just start off just so people understand what the Young Lords were and what their social contract and goals were. We were the first Puerto Rican group to believe that Africa was in our bloodstream. It was believed culturally by many Puerto Ricans, but it wasn't internalized. That meant that we had a visceral connection to black Americans, and we hung out with them. We, I, I grew up listening to Ella, Count Basie, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Billy Eckstein. These were my heroes. Tito Puente, Machido, Tito Rodriguez were also my heroes. It was difficult for our parents to understand that we were not coming out of the same mold. First of all, we were being educated differently. The teachers who were coming in were the new Jewish kids who had graduated from college who were giving us another perspective on history. It was a socialist perspective, believe it or not. Many of them were closet socialists. So we grew up that way. What do you mean you're not going to take you're going to take this uh, indoctrination by the welfare department? You go in and fight. You go in and talk to them. Of course, they didn't mean physically fight. And that was a problem I had with many of my teachers. Why are you out there fighting? You know, education is the way I said, but Ethel, my teacher who I love, yeah. Ethel, you cannot achieve a goal unless you put your life on the line. That's the only way it works. And she would say, but education is the way it works. And what has it done for most of our people? So we would, we would go through that. Now, the Young Lords were about change in a visceral way. We weren't interested in accolades. We weren't interested in awards and a lot of praise. We were interested in changing the institutions in our community. We wanted to change the way health was administered. We wanted to change the police department. We wanted to change the fire department. And we did just that. We decided to fight institutionally. 
Now, that was difficult because we were being pressured to do more. I felt that what all of us felt, actually, I shouldn't make it about me. We had a great group. We had Juan Gonzalez, who was a master strategist. I mean, master. We had Pablo Yoruba Guzman, who was a PR genius. He could have been a Sid Davidoff had he lived, had he not gotten sick and then and he's dead now. And Pablo was on Channel 2 for many years Channel as two. a reporter. Yes, he was. And Juan Gonzalez was a columnist at the Daily News for That's many right. years. So all of us went into media because we had learned how to manipulate media. Yeah. So we thought that that was the way to go. We had Juan Fiortis, a gang kid whose father was a minister, um, who knew all the kids on the street. And we had David Perez, a straight out of Puerto Rico, Hibaro we call it, uh, a, a, farmer ki- a farmer's kid. And we had me, a welfare kid, broken family, and a jailbird. We had probably the elements of a great group because all of us had a skill. Yoruba was about getting people, getting the press there on time. We had Gloria Rojas in those days, J.J. Gonzalez, Gil Noble. These were all prominent reporters, prominent reporters in, New York, in New York In the City. 60s. Yeah. We had, who was the other one? Uh, we had a Diario de la Prensa. Um, so we big, had- Biggest Spanish language newspaper yes. in the city. So we would still, take, still, yeah. we were taking care of business. Our first- Meetings were as a student organization called La Sociedad de Albizu Campos, the Society of Albizu Campos, who was the Malcolm X of Puerto Rico, who died of radiation poisoning because they killed him. The, one of the first Puerto Rican graduate of Harvard, spoke seven languages and a remarkable intellect, but who realized that Puerto Rico was a colony. Now, here's where we differ from some of the other Puerto Rican groups. No one was talking in those days, seriously anyway, about Puerto Rican independence. We were the only ones who said Puerto Rico's a colony and must be freed. It has to be liberated. And if it takes armed struggle, so be it. Cuba did it. The Dominican Republic did it. The Philippines did it. We're the only ones who are still under the colonial grasp of the United States government. What we didn't understand at that time is the position that Puerto Rico, the, the, the importance that Puerto Rico had in terms of military strategy. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico's right there. It's at the tip. You can Anything that's going out into the Atlantic, you could see it. And so the Bay of Pigs started there. Panama, the invasion of Panama started there. So you can't give that up militarily. Strategically, it's Strategically, it's, it's very important. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time, but still we would have fought. Yeah. So we believed in the independence of Puerto Rico. We believed in the liberation of all people of color. Now, remember, we're not talking about color. That's not something you do when you're Puerto Rican. Yeah. You avoid it. You evade it. You hide it. And also we believed... In a mild, not, not, we, were, we were not communists, but we were socialists. We believed in Marxism-Leninism. And to apply that measure to everything you do. In other words, we were critical thinkers. Whatever we, whatever we saw on TV, we said, well, that's not true. Yeah. We were able to discern what is nonsense and what is fact. Those skills could be used today, by the way. Still, still. <laughs> There's a lot of people who watched and don't know what to believe, you know. Well, because our educational system has failed. Yeah. I learned to be a discerning thinker. From teachers. I, I believe anything you tell me. I was raised Pentecostal. You're supposed yeah. to believe that God made the earth in seven days. I got beaten when I said, Mommy, I don't think that's exactly the way it happened. <laughs> My mother would give me the most vicious beatings. Yeah. But I believed in Darwin's theory of evolution. Yeah. Um, not something you do uh, when you're in the Pentecostal church. Right, right. They are the Hasids of the, um, of the Pentecost of the movement. So I, along with the others, believed that we had to motivate the people to support us, and we did. As it turns out, the community came out in force, and they helped us. When we took over the people's church the first time because the minister would not allow us to use his place as his, his um, 
church. For a food program. For a food program. And he, and he pointed his finger in my face and said, you bunch of, I know about you. I'm Cuban. I saw the Fidelistas do the same thing. They tried these, they tried these good, good programs. They were good guys until they weren't. Yeah. And I said, we're not communists. Right. I don't care, he said. You're not, never going to come to this church. And he pointed his finger in my face, and Zach, it took all my might not to break his face. Yeah, but he was a, um, um, because he was a religious leader, you would never do that. I would never do that. Right. Out of the question, because you lose, again, you lose the moral high ground. Right. The secretary came out and said, oh, Felipe, please. It was ridiculous. A few weeks later, we took over his church. Yeah. And that became a great morale booster for us, and it it enhanced our reputation in the community. And just to to be clear with with the takeover, the goal here was that the children in the neighborhood were not being properly nourished, right? That's right. And it's very hard to focus as a child on learning or anything else. You go to sleep. If you don't have a meal, right? That's right. Again, I go back to my teacher, Ethel Shapiro, who when I was fighting— uh, in the playground would say, you have a protein deficiency. Yeah. And I'd say, Ethel, what are you talking about? And she would take me to Jewish restaurants and Jewish delis and feed me, and I was satiated. I, I would go to class and— You, I, were, you were less angry. Less angry, absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, how much— All right, I do want to ask you a little bit about your kind of defining time going to prison. Just tell, walk us through that a little bit. We have a few minutes uh, before we get into the next segment, but that really, I think, sort of set the stage for how you viewed the world. Puerto Rican culture is very demanding. Family is everything to Latinos. It is everything. Not unlike Italians, by the way. But ours is an Afro-Caribbean mix. When someone crosses the line with your family, it's not a question of discussing with them. You take them out. Yeah. Because the threat will always remain. Okay. This guy had beaten up my brother. I was afraid of him. He was a bully. I was afraid of him in Bushwick. What year was this, by the way? 64. 64. Okay. And I said... I had told him, he had, he had asked me to join his gang, and I didn't want to join it because they were meandering morons as far as I was concerned. <laughs> they just wanted to fight. They wanted to mug people. I liked hanging out with guys who had um, dreams. Mm-hmm. My dreams kept me going. A larger, a larger social A larger social uh, cause. cause. But also they, they wanted to dress nice. They wanted to go with the girls. You know, they weren't necessarily intellects, but they were, they were, they were just nice guys. Yeah. Um, mentions, as they would say right. in Yiddish. <laughs> so he was annoyed, but I told him, look, I'll tell you what. I will join you if a gang comes in and tries to overtake your territory. I will join you because I'm in this community. But please leave my family alone. Ah, don't worry about that. My brother goes to a, um, a party and uh, goes upstairs, and he says that what they did is they went downstairs in the party, about four or five of them, and they beat up some Puerto Rican, they tried to beat up some Puerto Rican men coming home from work. Well, the Puerto Rican guys accorded themselves well and, and fought them off. No guns, no knives, just beat them fair and square. They came back in looking for uh, revenge, and they saw my brother. And because he was Puerto Rican, because he was my brother, they beat him almost within an inch of his life. When I came in, I had just gone to Carnegie Hall. I love Renaissance music, and I love choral singing. Gregorian chants is what I love most of all. And I'm coming in from having taken Sherry Hammond out and bringing her home and then coming to Brooklyn on Granite Street between Bushwick and Broadway and seeing my brother almost dead. Something in me changed. Yeah. And I knew, Zach, this is going to sound weird. I knew the guy was dead already. Yeah. I knew he was going to die. I was going to take him out. So I called my cousin, who then was head of a group called the Canarsie Chaplains, who were very, people don't remember them. They remember the Fort Greene Chaplains, the Marcy Avenue Chaplains. These guys were tough fighters. 
And I knew that they were good with their hands. In those days, your reputation was as much, it was, had as much to do with your hands as it did with your swag or how you could sound somebody out. It was your hands. It was fighting. And these guys were remarkable. So I called my cousin. He said, I'll be there tomorrow. This is Saturday. The next day he was there. This was Friday. Saturday he comes there. No, it was a Sunday. Sorry. Because the concert was on Saturday. Sunday he's there yeah. with seven guys. And I knew we could handle anybody because these guys were so good that seven could handle 22. When we go to look at this guy, I found out he was in a pool hall. We go to get him. And here's the thing he said that probably cost him his life. I said, why did you eat my brother? And I was squeaky. My, my voice was squeaky and everyone was laughing at me. Why, why, he, he didn't do anything to you, man. His name was um, Larry. And I said, he didn't, he said he didn't do anything. It was making fun of me. Right, mimicking you. And, yeah. yeah. So I was losing it and I knew I was going to lose it. And remember, I had already in my mind I was going to kill him. At one point, I put my hand on his pool cue and said, You're not gonna, there's not going to be any, any pool here. You're not going to play any pool. You're going to ask, you're going to answer me. I was hoping, beyond hope, that he would just say what he, just say, look, I'm sorry, man. And we would go on with our miserable lives. Right, right. He didn't. He wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't do that. And finally he said, listen, man, I don't, I don't have to say anything to you. I'll, I'll F you up. I'll F your mother up. I'll mess your sister up, your brother up. I mess your brother and I'll mess your, your mother up. When he said that, Zach, a bomb went off in my head. Yeah. My mother? That was it. I punched him so hard, he fell back. I don't think he had an exit plan. He didn't have a B plan. He was taken off of his throne because he was the tough guy in the neighborhood. Yeah. And I was the goody-goody guy. At that point, we ran after him, and we, got, we found him on Halsey and Broadway. We did him up. Now, I didn't get a chance to stab him. Uh, one of the guys who came with um, the group, I didn't even have a knife on me. He came with the group, uh, John, his name is, stabbed him twice, once in the heart and once in the lung. He died immediately. Wow. The cops came within 10 minutes. Yeah. They arrested us. I stayed with him. Everybody else left. I stayed with John because I knew he didn't know what he had done. Bloodlust is a weird thing, and you have to be very careful with it. Sometimes New York City police doesn't even know how to handle it. When a guy is into bloodlust, you got to take time. you got to calm him down. You don't have to hit him with a taser. Just, hey, hey, take it easy, man. Take it easy. Give me the gun or give me the knife. Take it easy. There's a way to handle that kind of anger that has gone over the top. It's a boiling anger. So I put the, the knife that he had used under the, a corrugated, uh, in those days they were metal garbage cans, and I put it under there. Yeah. The cops caught us, and they brought us into the police station. Well, they beat me for two hours. Yeah. And I found out later that the reason they beat me, they knew I hadn't stabbed him, but they wanted John to admit that he had stabbed him Yeah. by listening to me getting beaten up. Yeah. Uh, and he was right outside the door. And I mean, they were wailing. I mean, they hit me with their guns. They hit me with their uh, nightsticks, uh, with their fists. One guy, I write it in the book, hit me with a wolf ring. Okay. Punched me right in my mouth. And when he pulled it out, the flesh ripped. Oof. Yeah. He said, this freaking guy bleeds like a pig. I couldn't, I, I, I kept on wondering, why are they treating me like this? I'm, I'm a 16-year-old. Yeah. You know, I you were 16 at the 16. time. Wow. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to go to, he said, they, they kept on saying, you're going to do life or you're going to go take the electric, go to the electric chair. Well, when they take me out, I'm bedraggled. I'm all beaten up. My eyes are swollen. I can't see. They're like balloons. My mother comes in, walks right past me. She didn't even recognize me. She didn't even recognize me. But I see him as, as I'm, as I'm, they hang me up like a tanned hide. 
with handcuffs on my wrists and on my tippy toes so that what happens is when you put your heels down, it rips into your flesh. And he, he mouths silently, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, um, and you, you ended up serving serious time, Yeah, I did right? two years. I did, did two, two years. years. Elmira, and that's not serious time. These days, that's nothing. Yeah. But for me, it was the world. Had I done well, more time... two years is no joke. No, I mean, it's no joke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, Especially that's, when you start out. Right. And you were young. Very young. Yeah. But so would, would you say, and, and, and I got to like, say again how, how well written this is in the book, but I mean, would you say that that was sort of formative to your experience yes, and, it was. and your worldview? Yes, it was. Yeah. I found angels and devils in jail. Um, the reason I'm alive today is because those black men and Puerto Rican men, mainly black, kept me alive. Yeah. They saw something in me that they wished they had. I would read to them. I would sing to them in the Brooklyn House of Detention. You know the songs I would sing? All Disney tunes that I love. Yeah. Uh, whenever I feel afraid, I strike a careless pose yeah. and whistle, whistle a happy, happy tune, tune. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. from Snow White. Right, right. I, wish, I, I also uh, sang to them different songs from Disney, and, and they loved it. They were, and I realized that these were kids like me. Yeah. They were, the exterior was tough, right. but they were children. Yeah. And I would sing to them. And w- one of the guys that I've met now, his name is Grandmaster. He is a jujitsu guy, and he's fabulous. He, he said to me, I remember you. I remember you singing those songs. Yeah. And it put us to bed. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, was a, it was, in a sense, it, was, it determined my character. It, it, it cemented my character because I was really always into people. But it gave me a sense that these kids are not bad kids. Yeah. You know, we have to remember that. And um, we're running out of time here in the first segment, so I'm just going to ask you, you briefly on this that, you know, clearly you were mistreated, right? We're, yeah, what, what, say what, the least. You know, and, and, and what, what you guys did was wrong. I mean, let's, let's you yeah, know, I mean, yeah. I mean that, you know, this— It was murder. It was murder. This guy, this guy you know, w- was a bad guy, but— But that, so what? He didn't deserve to die. He didn't necessarily deserve to die, of course. However, your mistreatment must have led you to say, listen, we have to do something here for the community, right? That this, this led you into the belief that, that yes. radical action was needed because the, the mistreatment was so rampant. It was unconscious. I didn't consciously think of the fact that other people were suffering that way. I just wanted this. The reality in front of me was so stark. It was so disgusting that I had to do something. Um, but I wasn't thinking, Jesus, I was beaten up and these people are being beaten up. My people are being... I didn't think like that. You didn't. It okay. was unconscious. It was unconscious. Okay. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will start off on segment number two. We will take a closer look at when Felipe and the Young Lords took over Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx to demand better health care for the community. Stay with us. And we are back. Welcome to part two of our interview with Felipe Luciano. We are joined by our principal, Sid Davidoff. Good to have you, Sid. Uh, Good to be here. And we have the pleasure of delving into the takeover of Lincoln Hospital, which was done by Felipe as a member of the Young Lords more than 50 years ago. And Sid played a unique role in that negotiation and what went down at Lincoln Hospital in 1969. Felipe, maybe you could just start us off, tell us, uh, set the scene for us. Why, why Lincoln Hospital? Why do a takeover? Our importance to East Harlem was in the field of health. I didn't want to do that. I had just come out of jail, and I thought armed confrontation was the way to go. I didn't, did not believe that health was an issue. Uh, it took, when we did a study, I went into the streets and asked the elders, 
They said, we love that you like the romance. We love the, the whole thing with the guns and all. What we need is for you to pick up the garbage. At that point, I wanted to resign. I didn't want to go back. Garbage? How is that revolutionary? As I began to study the effects of garbage on the populace, um, the infectious diseases that can result from that, kids running through the streets catching all kinds of skin diseases and stuff, I began to understand that health is important. Right. We started with the TB testing program. Uh, Jack Newfield had done a series in the Village Voice on the kids who were dying from lead poisoning. Okay. So we picketed at the Department of Health, and they, they gave us TB, uh, what do they call it, um, lead poisoning. They said, your kids are ending up with permanent brain damage. Okay. We didn't, lead paint? Yeah. We had no idea. This was before there was awareness. Before there was awareness, and yes. Deficiencies and, uh, uh, after that, we listened to Jack Newfield, who also, who must have been a gadfly to the Lindsay administration, because he was always on their case, who said the next thing is the TB testing. The TB truck would go around everywhere else, but it wouldn't land in East Harlem. So we kidnapped it. Yeah. We took it there. We had the ability to soothe the anxieties of the technicians inside, as we did in Lincoln Hospital. So it's 1969. We hear reports that Lincoln is bloody, rats running through the operating room, disrespect to the elders, and we keep on thinking, we should do something about this. And Lincoln, of course, in the heart of the South Bronx. Right on Brooklyn Boulevard. Right. So, on a hill, by the way. So we decided to take it over. I was against it. I thought that from a, from a military standpoint, and I'm into military science, it didn't make any sense. There's no, we can't get, the logistical problem is major. You got to take the number six to get there. Right. Let's take over Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. It was decided that wasn't a wise thing to do because Mount Sinai was a liberal hospital. It was, you know, a lot of progressive Jews would have been against us. Yeah. So we decided, hey, Lincoln is the most obvious, the most egregious, guilty of most egregious crimes. Let's go there. So I was outvoted, and I'm happy we were because it was horrible. When I went in there, I couldn't believe it. So it wound up being the right decision. It wound up being the right decision. All right, uh, so you guys go early in the morning. You, you, take, you literally take over the hospital, right? Is well, that, is that- let me give you the background. I made sure that we were trained. I believe in training. We had these guys running around the Harlem Mirror, that lake, every day. Yeah. Until they could do it while having cigarettes in their mouths. So their, their breath capacity was good. Their endurance was good. And we were able to take Lincoln Hospital. We didn't want to take the whole hospital because I figured that if we took the hospital, we would be responsible for any deaths that occurred. Yeah. So, we, by the way, the deaths were reduced. Okay. Fatalities were reduced while we were there. Isn't well, that interesting? That, that is crazy, yeah. So we took it in seven minutes, an 11-story building, and we secured it in 15. Okay. And this was what month in 1969? I can't remember. The, it was, I think it was a little cold. Maybe it have been autumn. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Okay. I can't remember anyway. 50 years ago. Okay. And, and, and the goal here was to draw attention to the to Lincoln Hospital. inadequate medical Medicare. provider, you know, inadequate service a euphemism. It was horrible. It was horrible. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, apparently, the city knew about it, but they were working on a plan. We didn't know this. And we felt that when we heard about a late-term abortion, by the way, because of misdiagnosis mm-hmm. on the part of interns or the residents— I don't know which. We realized that we had to move. Yeah. And when we, we were surprised because when we took the hospital, miraculously, people appeared. They just came from all over. They knew. They knew stuff that we didn't know. Yeah. They knew that this was horrible. Something had to be done. They just didn't have the wherewithal to do it. And we took it. We knew we were putting our lives in our hands. I didn't think we were going to get out of there. Yeah. Remember, we're taking over a city institution. Yeah, it's, it's a very bold move. Very with, bold move and threatening. And what, what if they decide to do something else? What if they decide to take over a police station? What if they decide to take, you know, these, these kinds of things you have to think about. So we went in there. 
with the thought, okay, this may be our last hurrah, but we're going to make it a good one. All right. Enter Sid Davidoff. Now, you right. are working for the Lindsay administration at the time. Walk us through your process and how you came face-to-face with Felipe in that confrontation. So I get a call early morning from the mayor who tells me he's been informed by the police commissioner that the, this group has taken over the, the hospital, Lincoln Hospital. Lincoln Hospital. And get up there and do something about it. You know, that was pretty much my instructions. Uh, myself and Barry Gatterer, who worked as a team, uh, headed up there. Now, you got to understand, uh, the Young Lords, which took over the hospital, was on our radar, but it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. You know, it was 69. You got the Vietnam War. You got Columbia. You got after the teacher's strike. I mean, just go. It was, it was an incredible time. We had a lot of things to do. And there's only so much of us. And now we got this group that would call themselves the Young Lords. As I say, we've had them on a, sort of on our radar, but it wasn't much of a, we didn't care all that much. We had a lot of You didn't spend problems. a lot of time in City Hall talking about what they're yeah, doing or you know, what they were up to. Okay. So we're, not, we're walking into a situation where we got, we believe are these um, young Puerto Rican kids who are idealistic, who want something done, and don't, they really doesn't understand, really don't, don't understand the realities of life. You just don't build a hospital overnight. It isn't like you just replace it. It isn't just, there is a procedure, but it takes time to, one, to have the desire to do it, then to do, to, to go through the bureaucracy to get it done, and then to build it. It's a several-year project. But to the mayor's credit, John Lindsay's credit, that was a hospital we knew had to be replaced. We had 20, if I remember correctly, we had 21 city hospitals at the time. Yeah. Some were worse than others. Lincoln Hospital was one of our worst. More importantly, and which to the credit of, of the Young Lords, we didn't have really any Spanish-speaking people there. And this neighborhood had greatly changed. And it was, I'm going to say 90% at least of Spanish-speaking people who were using that hospital. And yet we had no administrator who spoke Spanish. We had no intake center could handle Spanish-speaking people. And we already knew that was a simple solution. When we went up there to talk to them, we already knew we had to make that change. That could be the, it's a personal change. Right. Building a hospital something else. So we walk in anyway, we walk in now, you got to see the scene. He says he's inside the hospital uh, with his group. They've taken over the administrative offices. We're concerned because we got lives at stake. How do you, you know, we don't know how much of the hospital is operating and not operating. And outside, it look, looked like an arm camp. Yeah. The police are there with their white tops, their cars, the sergeants, the captains, they're armed to the gills and they're ready to move in. There are hostages in there. They're in a hostage situation. Right. This is now an army takeover, yeah. right? So we, we, so we walk in and we try to explain to this group of young Puerto Ricans, this isn't going to get you anywhere. You walk out of here without a resolution. The next people you see, the people with guns. Right. Well, you know, and that's not where you want to you be. You can't negotiate with those guys, right? You know, you yeah. can't, you know yeah. and I'm telling you now, we can't build it overnight. I'm not sure we had their credibility in mind. Uh, you know, Felipe can tell you what they were thinking. I knew my job get them out of there, let's get the hospital operating, and let us go on with getting this hospital built, a new hospital. Right. That was it, and that was going to take a lot more time than they were willing to give us. And avoid anybody getting hurt. That was. The- yeah, I always want to avoid somebody getting hurt. Felipe, you write here, when you're talking about Sid and Barry's arrival, you said these were hardcore city politicos, versed in the rough-and-tumble world of labor, politics, union contracts, arm-twisting, and ethnic polling. Their aura reeked of the city's official enforcement crew, heavy hitters with metaphorical bats in hands. What they didn't understand was that we were a new brand of Puerto Ricans. Explain that and tell me if you remember this actual coming, actually coming face to face with Sid and and what that felt like. We had to make a decision. Do we act out 
and kidnapped them. So that, we, that actually was con- under was consideration. Considered. Yeah. And I said, I remember saying this in the meeting, uh, Lenin has a quote where he, does, he believes that kidnapping is legal and telling people, to a- asking them for money was legal. I thought that that would have uh, ruined our reputation. We would have lost the hot moral high ground. Right. And we wanted to stay on top of it. Sure. So they come in, and I knew that there were two reasons for them coming. One was reconnaissance. How many do they have? Because the police were going to ask them. We knew that. Right. They were uh, going to brief the police on what, what the, the situation was yeah. inside. There okay. are a few of them in there. Five of them are, are the real hotheads. And so we had to make a decision about whether to negotiate or to fight it out. We knew we were not going to make it. Um, we didn't have any guns. I refused guns in the park. Well, I, I bought them. And they were there for the ready if, in fact, we needed them. But I believe that the Panthers' answer to what was happening in California was the wrong way to go. They spent so much time in jail, so much time with court cases. I believe the old hustlers in Harlem used to say, never take out a gun unless you're going to use it. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up under them. Now, when they walk in, they were swashbuckling. Sid always had swag. He came in, and his eyes did not reveal any sympathy. Yeah. The hell are you guys doing? Right. We're already working on this. What do you want? What do you want us to do? Exactly what he said. We can't build the hospital. I said, Mr. Davidoff, with all due respect, you gotta. We can't afford to have our people die here. Your parents are not dying here. My parents are dying here. So he looked at me. He said, I understand. Look, we got a we got a, a Puerto Rican who's going to be head of the uh, head of the Lincoln Hospital. And we said, one Puerto Rican does not a revolution make. Right. You know, we're in trouble here. Yeah. I forget the lady's name or the guy's name. Lacat, I think his name was. So they had already been working on this. Now, to his credit, and I say this now 50 years later, Lindsay was an angel in disguise. He could have killed us. Yeah. Could have taken us out. Because we had guys marching in front of this big bay window in, the, in uh, Lincoln Hospital with sticks that were uh, taped up. They could have thought they were guns. Yeah. They could have come in there and killed us. Again, let me explain to you what the Young Lord philosophy was. It was that we were down for the count, do or die. I... Remember, my mother telling me, why don't you leave that group? I said, Mommy, I'm ready to die. And that's what we forget about young activists. They, they, their heart is there. That's why people, that's why the army uses young people, because you can train them. Yeah. I was ready. We sit down at a table. Sid with his sad eyes. I call him sad rabbinical eyes. Like yeah. he's seen everything. <laughs> Please, kids, you're not, you're not, you are not going to change me with anything you say. Barry Goddard seemed to be the hothead. And he said, do you know what can happen to you after we leave? Those guys are gunning for you. You know, you, you, you got to make a decision. I said, we don't have to make a decision now. Right. If anything happens, our blood is on your hands. So we were together about an hour, back and forth, back and forth. He said, okay, we have a, a Puerto Rican guy who's going to be the head of the hospital. We developed a patient bill of rights, by the way. It's now used all over the United States. And he says, I think you guys have to make a decision here because when we walk out, it's a wrap. And we saw, and as soon as Sid said that, I got a chill in my body. I said, they're planning. All he has to do is walk out of that hospital, and the attack begins. Right. And we saw them beginning to move toward us, uh, slowly, slowly. And if you, if you know police tactics, and we know them, uh, they think we don't. It's real cool, but they start inching up, yeah. inching up. And it wasn't surreptitious. We saw them. You saw it actually moving. Yeah. yeah. So I said, they're getting ready to hit. As soon as uh, Davidoff and Goddard get out of here— it's over. So we had to make a decision. Thank God. One of the interns uh, said, you know, there's a tunnel that you can get. Because we didn't know how to, you know, when you plan something, you need access and egress. Right. This is you just, need an exit strategy. Yeah, you need it. Absolutely. 
we didn't know what we were going to do. Were we going to fight it out? I didn't want to do that because in fighting it out, you can accidentally get shot. Yeah. And there was, the, the public was outside. They weren't inside. So they wouldn't have seen it. Sure enough, there was a tunnel that was used by the Underground Railroad in the old days. And that's how we got up. But what we did, and here's where you have to give credit to the doctors, the nurses, the interns, and the orderlies who gave us white coats, stethoscopes, and we walked out with the rest of the crowd. So you look like they blended we in with like the crowd. We look like them, yeah. absolutely. And that's how we got out. Sid, did you anticipate that being their exit strategy? No, I, I didn't. You have to understand something. We didn't see them as criminals. Mm-hmm. Thank God. They, they were right. We knew they were right, and they knew we knew they were right. The difference is that they wanted something done now, and now couldn't be done. Because of John Lindsay, the philosophy that we had at City Hall was the police was not our first line of defense. It's the last line of defense. Where's the last people you want to use in a civil disorder or a civil issue is the police who have no ability to do anything but to arrest. We had the ability to make a difference. In many of these situations where we had community disorder, it was simple things. It was a clean park with a basketball hoop and a, and a bathroom that was open, a water fountain that worked. Things that you think people should have each day, and you could fix immediately. What they were asking for was something that couldn't be done for years. Yeah. Impossible. However, we had to let them know that we understood it. We wanted them to understand our problem, and somewhere in between there was a, there was a disconnect. I have a lot of respect for young ones. I've done a lot of interviews about them. You know, they took over a church in East Harlem. They did a lot of things that were really pains in our ass. But it wasn't, you know, I've dealt with, I, we dealt with any kind of organization you could deal with. The young lords were relatively educated, yeah, generally committed, came from some stable life. These weren't street hoods, in our view. They weren't gun-bearing. It was a different type of organization. So... I had a lot of respect for them. At the same time, they had to understand where we were coming from. We, the last thing I wanted to happen, and it happened in Columbia, where we, the police had to come in because there was no answer to that, to the situation. It had to be cleared. When there was a takeover. I, yeah. yeah, I did. You know, It took six days before the police came into Columbia. Here I have literally 100 cops outside who's only one function. Yeah. And their order is, you know, take back the property. So I was happy they got out. Felipe's right. Once Barry and I walked out of there, we lose control of the situation. It's now a police thing. That's the last thing you want to happen. Right. And there was a breakdown. Let me read also again from, from your description, Felipe, of Sid. Sid Davidoff's face looked more haggard than Goderer's, more lines, sad, rabbinical eyes that looked like they had seen too much. But he noticed everything, every movement, every whisper, our body language, tone of voice, the feel of the room. He stared straight at you when he spoke, didn't seem to be afraid of too much, but he had never been to jail. I had. He had never gotten his ass kicked so soundly he wished he would die. I had. And I was sure he was never at the point in his life where he simply didn't care, where he was ready to die for something far greater than himself. I was already there. It's true. There was a bit of patronizing. Um, He was weary. You know, like, what are you doing? What are you kids doing? You can't call us kids. We had been to jail. Uh, We had been to the Nam. We had fought in gang battles in the streets. We didn't feel that we were kids. We felt that we had read, suffered, and experienced the pangs of poverty, and we knew what this was about. We knew we were putting our lives in our, in our hands. Sid was like, God, this is another day on the job. You know, <laughs> it's another day. Well, you, you dealt with unrest and upheaval in a very tumultuous time. I mean, he had you, dealt you with were the working, Columbia. He right, you were working for, for the Lindsay administration at, at a very, you know, time of upheaval in America, and a lot of the ground zero for that was right here in the city. And there's a book called uh, The Mayor's Man, which t- takes the experience where I sat with one of the 
black nationalists, black Muslims, who said in three years, uh, we're going to have guns and be shooting you in the street. I said, so we got three years to talk. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, so I, I, you know, I understand. I got it. Is yeah. that rabbinical or what? Right. <laughs> I got it. I, I got to emphasize, the young lords were different. Yeah, they came from a family structure. It was different than almost any. I mean, I dealt with Sonny Carson and Core, and you know, who took over poverty centers. Crazy Abby Hoffman, who would just for a lock at two o'clock in the morning with Stone stop traffic on 3rd Avenue and 8th Street, you know, because he had something to say. You know, this was different. They had a plan, and it wasn't, they weren't wrong. I couldn't join them, and that wasn't the issue. Right. It was that we had the same plan. They just had a different timetable. Okay. And would you say that that takeover wound up getting a new hospital that much faster? Did it actually work? Yeah. I actually think we tried to implement a few things. Yeah. The, the most easy one was, you know, a Puerto Rican uh, administrator. administrator, get some Spanish-speaking people in there, but also get an overlook into the supplies, uh, into what and what they're doing, the protocols, things you can do in an existing hospital that, in a hot summer day, and the kids turned on uh, those uh, hydrants outside. The pumps, yeah. You know, to, to create a pool in the street, the water pressure in that hospital dropped to nothing. While there was operations going on, this was a serious. I mean, this wasn't. This was a third world situation in a city like New York at the time. Yeah. So we got it. I mean, we understood how we corrected it is is the issue. They pushed us to the point to push that paperwork up front to get the bureaucracy to move faster. There's no doubt about it. Okay. And what what wound up happening? They they refurbished the hospital. They rebuilt. New the hospital. They built a yeah. new one. Okay. In in exactly seven years. Oh, six or seven years they built it. Record yeah. It's on 149th Street. Right. And uh, six or seven years sounds like a lot of time, but not really in terms of New York City time. Right. And it was it became a priority of our administration. And would you you think, Felipe, that had you not taken this action, that never would have gotten the attention it deserved? The city has a way of every city um, has a way of lagging, of just doing it when it's necessary. Just take it easy. This is not important. We may have to do something else. They've got labor unions. They've got educational problems. They've got all kinds of stuff happening. So this wasn't going to be a priority because it wasn't personal to them. Yeah. And we understood that. The only way you make something personal is when you make it personal, when you put your life on the line, when you put your body on the line. We knew that. What I saw in Sid's eyes was resignation. Oh, Jesus. Another do-gooder. You know, he doesn't understand what, what time it is. Right. You know, he's working with a city of nine million people. He can't. And he's a troubleshooter. Yeah. You know, so I saw it and I wanted him to understand. And he, he spoke to me. He said, you guys don't know what you're doing, you know. Yeah. You know, we're trying our best. And I said, Sid, we need to have this done. A lady died on the operating table. We found out later that many people had died because of misdiagnosis. The doctor's were not up on their stuff, and a lot of our people were being hurt and, and dying. So he just, when he walked away, and Barry Goddard is red in his face, and he's, I think Sid had to calm him down at one point, because he was like, you freaking guys, what are you doing? Yeah. Do, do you know what you're doing? And I looked at him, I said, we sure do. Yeah. We know exactly what we're doing. They walked out, I knew it was time for them to attack, and we got out. Now, the we didn't see and didn't know the character of uh, John Lindsay. John Lindsay was really an angel in disguise because we took over a church. It didn't bother. We took over a church with guns. 
And he kept on saying to his administration, they're not dangerous. Don't go in there shooting. Now, I had already chicken mesh. When we took over the first people's church, we wire mesh, chicken wire mesh the, uh, the windows because incoming, you could die. The second people's church I was against because I thought it was using guns. The Puerto Rican community, believe it or not, is a law and order community. I don't care how progressive you think the young lords are, they are about law and order. And um, I was concerned, and it didn't happen. This, uh, Lindsay did not give the order to take us out. And how close was that to happening, Sid? Hey, good stories about that. We lost, uh, Ani, we talked about Ani Segarra uh, at some point. Uh, Ani was assistant to the mayor, and I can remember him going into the church. I said to him, we had the two-way radios, no cell phones in those days. And I sent him in there to talk some sense I got a priest being held hostage in here, you know. Again, the police are outside. They're ready to move. They're waiting for the order. Yeah. And I said, Arnie, and there's a true story. And, and half hour goes by, and I get Arnie on the radio. I said, Arnie, what's going on? He says, Sid, you know, they're right. <laughs> I'm with them. <laughs> yeah. It was so it's a crazy time. Right. So my the assistant to the mayor yeah. in charge of Puerto Rican affairs and community <laughs> affairs is now going to join them, He's join them and I got to throw him out. <laughs> I don't know what you don't want to know what I said to him. It was yeah. on the right side uh, of history. Yeah, yeah. It was on the right side of history. <laughs> but you know, somehow we worked it out. Uh, again, it was more of respect. I didn't see them as the same thugs that I saw many other groups. Yeah. This wasn't, the end wasn't going to be violence. It couldn't be violence. It shouldn't be. They were right. This wasn't blackmail. This wasn't, this was about community improvement, the recognition. It wasn't breaking windows, you know, stealing, you know, stealing a television set. It was a group of guys who was committed. We got it. Yeah. You know, and, but we were on different sides of the war. Sure. Absolutely. So we had to deal with, Getting it at the same time, dealing with a public image, a political image, press image. So that's how we, you know, we tried to de- deal with them a little bit differently. And I think we were right, and I think they were right. I'm here today because of that. Right. And well, I, this could I, have gone in a very bad direction, I right? I mean, I think here, you both seem to agree it was very tense. I sit here 50 yeah. years later, and I thank Sid. Uh, I thank Barry Goddard. I thank Mayor Lindsay for not having shot us down. Yeah. That was easy to do. Uh, we were a bunch of radical colored guys. Yeah. And too many in the police department hated our guts. They lived outside the community. These were young Irish, Italian, Czech kids, German. Who the hell were we? Yeah. How dare they? And had they given the word, it, they would have been more than happy to take us out. Now, what it would have started, Sid doesn't know this, but what it would have started had they hurt any of us, had they killed any of us, it would have started armed struggle at East Harlem. Yeah. We were ready for that. Yeah. We had already bought the guns. We were ready. But I didn't want to follow the, the, they came from Oakland, the Panthers came to me and said, why don't you follow mandate number two? Mandate number two is always carry arms, always be willing to use them. And I said, do you know how much time you guys have wasted, not wasted, because of Eldridge Cleaver and his ridiculous comments? He killed a lot of people mm-hmm. just by that. I knew the attitude, the attitudinal perceptions of the officers. Uh, there was the TPF in those days. There was the Red Squad uh, we had um, uh, several people. Bossy was there, Bureau of Special Services. We had a bunch of guys. We knew all of them. Yeah. And I said, I know what they're willing to do, so I don't want to do that. Not to mention that had we taken out guns, our own community might have gone against us. Yeah. You lose, you lose support. We lose, yeah. we lose support yeah. of our yeah. community, yeah. and we weren't ready for that. 
So uh, thank God that uh, Lindsay had the good sense to pull back. All right. We are coming up on the end here, Sid. Final thoughts. Just here we are more than 50 years later. You guys are having a very different kind of confrontation. You can actually look back on this and speak uh, you know, collegially about, about what happened. You know, it has been 50 years. And Philippe and I have had several conversations since. I think we both hold respect for each other that we showed in those days. Different in the way we handled it. We, had, we each had our, our master, our own th- thoughts, our own ideals. But we worked it out. I think Sid had a street kid in him, too. He is, and I say this not patronizing and not just to throw effusive praise at him. There's a swag about him that I like. It's a New York swag. He's a Jewish kid who had to grow up fighting, cursing and all the other stuff. But what we did resonated with him. If he were younger, he might have been with us. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? On your set, right. Yeah. Or gone a different path, maybe. Different path, yeah. 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 But he was a nice Jewish boy. So he couldn't do that. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. It has been. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thanks, guys. The Lobbying Insider is a production of Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron, LLP, New York's premier middle market law firm, practicing in over 20 areas, including commercial litigation, economic development, real estate, and, of course, government relations. The Lobbying Insider is produced by Joe Benti, and our sound recording engineer is Devante Addison, Publicity by Jody Fisher PR with Beth Ann Mayer at Lemon Seed Creative Managing Social Media. Our podcast platform manager is Monica Thomas. I'm Zach Fink, host of the podcast. And if you'd like to help us spread the word about our show, please share it with colleagues and friends and be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice. It can be found on Apple, Audible, Google, iHeart, Podbean, and Spotify platforms. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>